namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma samputassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma samputassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma samputassa buddhang dhammang sankhang namasami sound okay at the back noma you can hear me all right sant you can hear me all right. Uh, thank you for the questions because I don't know what to say tonight. This is very helpful. I'm enjoying practicing with you. I'm enjoying the questions. Um, it's, it's, uh, it's actually a great honor to do this and a great privilege because I, I learn a lot from you know, just trying to express my own insights and then your questions help me look at other aspects of practice or it helps me to see if I'm expressing things in a way which is helpful. So I, I, I am quite grateful. So, Pratsotapan has awareness all the time, question mark. Um, so that's one of those buzzwords like cheese. <laughs> you have these certain kind of concepts that keep coming up in Theravada Buddhism, don't they? For monks it's cheese and jhana. Um, Sotapati is one of those that comes up. Um, so it's a big, big topic. But I think the best way to look at it is not to Not to say that there is a person who is a sotapanna, but rather what what preoccup what are the preoccupations of awareness that prevent entry into Dharma? Put it differently, okay? Because the assumption of a person is already wrong view. Like one of the questions they people will ask. Uh, does does Buddhism, do we have free will? Right? And the, the, the question assumes personhood. So it's already a, a problematic question. Um, so when you say, does the Sotapanna have awareness all the time, you already have a kind of problem in the formulation of the question. So I would reformulate it and say there is knowing, there is awareness. And what is it about? Uh, what ha what are the pre okay? What are the preoccupations of awareness that prevent en entry into the stream of dharma? And what is the stream of dharma? Well, it's the, the way things are. So if we look at what Long Paul Liam says in that reading, things are as they are. Right? People are just people. There are no good people, no bad people, no big people, no small people. Um, so what classically, the way that's described is through the three, there's, there's a list, you know, you've noticed that Theravada Buddhism has lists. There are ten, and there are seven, and there are four, and there are three, and there are twelve, and there are... So we do lists in Theravada Buddhism. And the list here is Sanyojanas, and they're called the fetters in English. And so the, the first fetter is called Sakaiditi, and that is 
in English it's translated as personality view. So if we took that formulation, what it, when, when awareness is preoccupied with personality view, that would prevent the knowing of the stream of Dharma or the stream of truth. Okay, so what would that mean? Preoccupation with personality view. Well, let's say uh, I get uh, I get diagnosed with liver cancer. Okay, and um, and the doctor says, "Well, you got six months to live." Okay. Um, and then my mind goes into overdrive, thinking I won't be able to make any more furniture. No. <laughs> it, it starts to think, I have liver cancer. Uh, I'm going to die. Uh, I don't want pain. Uh, what am I going to do with my family? The mind goes into overdrive, thinking in a very personal way. And that's Sakaiditi, personality view. And why not? What else would you do? Right? Whereas if then in being given that diagnosis, I saw the mind start to create thoughts, personal storylines uh, based on fear. And there was the knowing, oh, fear feels this way. And fear produces uh, these thoughts. Then I would be knowing Dharma, wouldn't I? That would be the dharma of fear and the thought consequent on the dharma of fear. So then the awareness would not be preoccupied with sikaiditi. It would know the way things are. Right? So that's not so far away. Um, that's kind of doable. You, many of you might, I don't know, some of you have seen a book titled at Lompos Semedo, uh, Someone edited some of his talks called Don't Take Your Life Personally. I mean, you don't even need a book. The title's enough. Because <laughs> in English, we talk a lot about um, taking things personally. This is don't take your life personally. And that's what Sakaiditi is about. It's one of the best titles of books I've ever seen. So the second one is Silabhata Paramasa. And that's usually translated as superstition. Right? But Lompol gives it a very deeper, and I like Lompol Semedo's reflection on that. He gives it a deeper sense that it's the attachment to cultural uh, identities. And by culture, I mean how you were raised in a family or how you were raised in Thai culture or Canadian culture or um, what the culture says about what a man is or what a woman is or even what Buddhism says. So it's a kind of whole identity which is kind of hidden. You don't see it that um, is enculturated. So let's say um, like in Thai culture, to point your feet at a Buddha Rupa is gross, right? To point your feet at an Arahant is like death. <laughs> and yet, and yet, it is simply a cultural form. 
So and I've seen that. I've seen that where you'll have a, uh, in a, in a shrine room, you'll have a Thai person who has been in Canada a long time uh, sitting in front of me, and there will be a Farang who has maybe an older man, and uh, I'll be talking, and the older man will stick his feet out towards me. And the Thai person, even though they know, the Farang doesn't know, feel horrible, right? And that, you know, what is that? That's cultural conditioning. Because there's nothing immoral about sticking your feet out, right? But in, 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 in a Thai conditioning, it is immoral. It's bop. And yet, it's not really in, it's not like in the sila, is it? It's like, the, there's, let me see, oh, there's the ninth rule where you can't stick your feet out, right? No. It, it, so that's cultural conditioning. Right? And you can see how that can be so close to you that you don't, you don't realize you're doing that. I went to the, uh, I was just in Japan before I came here, and I went to see the Kamakura Buddha, south of Tokyo. You know, it's a, it's a very famous one, bronze, maybe 40 foot. I think it has the posture like that, famous. Well, I went there, and it's full of tourists. And they've sawed a hole in the back of the Buddha, put a door in the back, so people can walk in and look out the eyes of the Buddha. And I said, oh, how can you do that? <laughs> what? These stupid people. But they don't like a bunch of tourists, right? You know, like they go see Mickey Mouse, they go see the Kamakura Buddha. It's all the same. <laughs> but for me, I say, oh, oh, terrible. So what I did, I, I, I just went really mindfully, because everyone's just kind of playing around, having a Coca-Cola and sitting on the Buddha's lap kind of thing. So I went really, really very slowly and mindfully, and I just bowed as gracefully as I could. And I felt it, too. And it, it kind of stopped everyone. They said, what was that? <laughs> Culture, right? So icons are, are cultural things. Um, now, obviously, like, let's say if I, if, if I bow to an image and I think that image is going to give me power, that's what we call in English idolatry. I, 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 you know, there's an idol out there and it gives me power. And that is very sila bhatta paramasa. But when we bow to this Buddha here, we're not bowing to an idol we're using a symbol, right, to help us be inspired in our practice. So if you start to take religious imagery in Thailand as having power in itself, and that that power is outside of you, and that you're praying to that, well, that's Sila Bhatta Paramasa. And the Buddha never said that, right? How many Buddha images existed at the time of the Buddha? Zero. You know, that in, in, in Buddhism, it was very, the uh, artists were very reluctant to invent Buddha rupas. And I think, I think the first Buddha rupas came 500 years after the Buddha, in, in either in Afghanistan or Madura, they're not sure. Because they realized it's very, the human propensity to um, 
make, make a deity the force of goodness. Whereas the Buddha says, no, the force of goodness is your own heart. Um, so if you go to the Amaravati exhibit in the, in the British Museum, um, they have some of the some of the walls from the stupa and the surrounding um, fence that was at the great Amaravati stupa in South India, which that Amaravati culture, I think was, I think it lasted a thousand years. Uh, it went through all kinds of transformations. But it's very interesting, they've displayed where early Buddhism, uh, the, the carvings, you see no Buddha images. You see footprint, you see tree, you see a Dharma seat, and you see an umbrella. I think that's the four. And, and the, the, the seat or the place of the Buddha is always empty. The Buddha is never defined as a person. Uh, and then you see the, someone then, some of the sculptors, later on when Buddha images were invented, switched the stones around, took them out, and uh, re-carved them and put Buddhas in them put Buddha images in them. So that's a, that's a kind of coarse form of Sila Bhatta Paramasa. Uh, so you find that people, you know, they think if, a, if, a, if you have a prop and you put it around your neck and, Lom, and Lumpur Man has blessed it, then bullets won't hurt you. Very dangerous. <laughs> this is not a good idea. <laughs> so you, you think that these things are imbued with power and, and people pay a lot of money for that, don't they, right? I had a very interesting case in, in New Zealand. There was a Thai woman who had this, she kept being very proud of this prop around her, around her neck. And she, this is so much power, you know, it has so much goodness. And uh, Kuba, this and Kuba, that blessed it. And I said, are you sure, you know, you really want to go there? She went swimming and lost it, Doknarok. And she was so afraid. She was so afraid now because she didn't have her protection. She came and asked me for one. I said, I'm sorry, that's not my business. I don't do that. But it was interesting. You know, she thought she had power. She lost it. And then she thought she's finished. It was all her mind. Sila Bhatta Paramasa. So there are those those kinds of, and those we would call superstitions, but there's also all of that kind of cultural identity that, that we have, which are, which are quite often hard to, hard to see. But when you suffer in some kind of a way, uh, which is, like, like let's say, Amaravati, we have usually 20, nationalities operating there and uh, you know like a, a German might not understand an Englishman's jokes or, 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 or like I guess in Thailand I would say correct me if I'm wrong direct criticism would not be done you know like you'd never say to someone you did that wrong you'd probably say it more roundabout that's what I've heard so I might come from a culture which is very direct and tell you something and then you'd think I'm, I'm, a, I'm a total beast. 
But I might think, well, that's normal, right? And we might have this great conflict about what? About cultural conditioning. This is not how you do things, right? So there's a lot of confusion that, that can arise around that. Um, so if, if, if awareness, if, I'm, if we speak in this way, then if awareness pre- is preoccupied with something like that, then that prevents the stream of dharma to sing, well, it's just this way. It's just this way. If someone uh, breaks sila, that's different. That's not cultural. If someone um, comes to the monastery and they uh, start um, killing the, the squirrels, say, we'd say, get out. Not because it's cultural, because it's moral. You don't kill. You know, that's, that's, that's not cultural. You could say, well, it's only your culture. I'd say, yeah, but it's an agreement that we have. That it's about killing and it's about the heart, not, not killing and so on. So that's a, quite a deep one sometimes. It's hard to see. Uh, it's hard to notice. Um, I think in, in like when, when, we West, when I first went to Wapapong, I, was, I must have been so coarse. But not through no intention, but I just didn't understand the culture, you know, and I'd... The, <laughs> there was, a, you know, we have these gatons, the spittoons. <laughs> there was a Western monk, right? And he was at the end of the line, and he, he, uh, <laughs> he, he didn't have a cup. So he took the guitar and drank water. <laughs> Everyone's, oh, that's interesting. <laughs> he didn't know. <laughs> or, or I remember, uh, we, you know, we set up for the meals at, in the sala. And uh, so I was helping to set up with a meal, and I was kicking the spittoons around with my feet. And Lompachas looked at me and said, my sway. <laughs> It was a very gentle way of saying, right? So culture, you know, these cultural things, if they are taken on, I mean, I would not, I don't want to live as, as an ape without culture. I like culture. I, I love Thai culture. I love its gracefulness and its beauty. But I don't have to be attached to it. So when I go to Kamakura and they're crawling all over the Buddha and I get angry, it's my mind, right? It's not them. And I didn't, I didn't really get angry. I was just amazed, you know, like that. So if my, my mind is producing uh, hatred or judgment of others or rejection of others or all of that, that's my mind that's doing that. And it's stimulated by things which might, might seem kind of reasonable, but they're not necessarily reasonable. When we were... When Lumpa, we were, when Lumpa Cha came to England... We were very curious to see how adaptable is he to Western culture, right? And very, you know, and and to see, and of course he was totally adaptable. But there was one incident where there was one of the one of the lace women who who supported the. Um, we we lived in London, in a in a very uh, kind of narrow space, and we had very few supporters. There's one woman who was an opera singer. And she was a great, a Farang, a Westerner, great supporter. And, and she offered us dana. So there was Lumpur Sumedho, Lumpur Cha, Lumpur Sumedho, 
myself, Anando, maybe five of us, and this would have been 79. And she was so nervous. She was so, so nervous. And she made this incredible meal, incredible meal. And, and Lompot Shah saw how nervous he, 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 uh, she was, and he praised her for the food. Now, you know, in Thailand, a monk never praises. You know, it's such a strong rule for us. We never say, wow, that hamburger was fantastic. You know, because then we'll only get hamburgers the rest of our life. <laughs> but, you know, you, and, and, you know, you, as a monk, you're very sensitive. If another monk is complimenting the cook, we say, what do you, don't do that. Yap. <laughs> but he saw that Nora was, was very, very nervous, and he complimented on their friend. And we all noticed that, you know, and that was a kind of a capacity to sense. So this is a different culture, and this person's frightened. And they need encouragement. And it doesn't sound like a big thing, but it just shows that he wasn't attached to Thai culture. When um, one day they, we were coming back from Pindapod, I wasn't there, but I, I mean, I was at the Vihara, but I wasn't in that Pindapod. And, and there was, uh, you probably heard this story, but Lumpu Cha first, so walking alms round on a busy street near Hatton, in the north of London. And uh, so you have Lumpu Cha, five foot two. You have Lumpu Sumedo, six foot two. <laughs> Lumpu Cha's got the biggest bowl in the world. Lumpu Sumedo has, and I think Lumpu Kemetamo, five foot six, right? So you have this, and, and, and they're walking slowly. And, and this, um, do you know what a skinhead is? It's one of, you know, it's, it's, it's a nasty Londoner guy who, who has you know, all the gear, and he was very aggressive. And so he, he started to approach us, and he, and he, and he kind of swore at Lompacha and, and kind of faked that he was going to kick him. And Lompacha Semedo said he, he was ready to hit him with his alms bowl if he did anything. <laughs> but nothing happened, like, right? And then, so they... <laughs> they walked to the Vihara, and then they got to the front door, and then before Lumpo, Lumpu Cha went through, he, he, he turned to Ajahn Sumedho, he says, oh, they teach very good here, Sondi. So he said, yeah, it was a good place to practice. It wasn't Thailand. <laughs> so, so cultural attachments are actually, actually quite hard to see, but if you're getting upset about something, then it isn't moral, Right? And it's really not, not immoral what's happening. And why am I getting upset? Because I, I, have, a, I have a certain comfort in culture. And again, I, I like culture. And, and I, 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 I'm, gra I'm glad I'm not a primate. I am a primate. But I'm, I'm glad I'm not a chimpanzee, right? Or a gorilla. So I, I, I appreciate culture and the richness of culture. But attachment to culture... You know, that's something different. So that's the Sila Bhatta Paramasa. So the, uh, you know, so the, as I'm saying, awareness is preoccupied with this cultural position and it's not free. And, and the last one is, which he, uh, is doubt. And, and, and doubt, as I've been saying, is really the preoccupation with thought. 
where the mind always sees the solution to all of life's problems is analysis, thought, and, 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 and so on and so forth. So it's the thinking mind. Um, so in, in the text, it says that you know, someone who has realized that stage has no doubt about the Buddha, Dhamma, and Sangha. But what does that mean? Does that mean that you never have doubt? I, I, I don't think so, because doubt is just such a it's, a... it's a dharma, isn't it? So I would say is that the, you don't understand one would still be attached to, to the sense of self that believes in thought. The sense that all problems have to be resolved through thought. The sense of me being confident in thought and then when there is doubt, not having confidence, needing to always find an answer. I would say it's that kind of thing. So when, 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 uh, when the knowing or consciousness or awareness is not preoccupied with those three things, we would say, then life is known as the flow of Dharma. Now, when it's known as, flow and, uh, as the flow of Dharma, then it's a chance for the liberation of the asavas and kilesas. So the next stage uh, of, of um, once returner, we say, is the lessening of, 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 of um, hatred and lust. Now that's interesting. It's like when those three things are gone and there's the flow of dharma, then lust is known as lust and hatred is known as hatred then they begin to lessen. So they don't begin to lessen, it said, until, until they're seen to be uh, a, a dharma, a flow in dharma. As long as they're taken personally, they still, they just get recycled in the mind. So that's one way of looking at it. There's many ways to look at that, but it's a, it's a, it's a confusing teaching because people always think, I want to get sotapati, like I want a hamburger kind of thing. And, and, and any, any teaching which, which says you have to get this, but you cannot reflect on it in any way, what is the use of that? I don't see how you can use that. You know, you have to get that. Oh, great, thank you. What is it, blue? <laughs> but when you take it this way, and this is what Lompo Sumedho has taught me, you can reflect on Sakaya Ditti as something that, you know, your mind gets caught up into. You can reflect on... on, on superstition and cultural attachments. You can do that, and you can reflect on this attachment to thought. You can do all of that, so it's doable. So rather than say, I have sotapati or I don't have sotapati, don't, don't, don't phrase it that way. Phrase it like, when the, these, are the th these are the three fetters, and abandon those three fetters. You can do that, and then you don't have to make a claim or not a claim. You can work with that no matter what you say. Now obviously, um, we also have deep, what we call in English, epiphanies, which is a deep insight into like emptiness or deathlessness, and those are also very significant, very, very significant, and they, they come in, in, into it too. But I think this is the way it's defined in the text, so it's, it's doable, it's workable. Okay, that's a long answer for the first question. Um... No, there's another one I wanted to look at. Anyone busy? You have any appointments? Or can I? Well, I'll do that one later. 
what is the, would it be correct that the focus on walking meditation is the moment the foot hits the ground? Would it also be helpful to be conscious of the number of steps to keep the mind from wandering? Well, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it wouldn't be wrong. But the problem with that for me is that you want to keep the mind from wandering. And then you get into a kind of forced march called walking meditation. <laughs> that was good, wasn't it? Forced march? <laughs> and, and then you're trying to control yourself and so that you don't think. And I, 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 would, I would say that, that what it lacks is the understanding that thought, first of all, is natural. You know, it, it, it's just a function of, of brain matter in, in whatever ways. And that thought arises from intention. So if, if I have been thinking about clocks, you know, and I, and I look at the instructions about, this is a very complicated clock, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> and I read, read the instructions, then when I sit in meditation, what's going to happen is clock thoughts will come, right? So you could say, I am thinking about clocks, or you could say, clock thoughts have arisen. And, and if you say, I am thinking about clocks, then if I am thinking about clocks, I say, well, don't think. All right? If you think you're thinking, then don't think. <laughs> Right? Just say that to yourself. Okay, I'm not going to think. And how long does that last? It doesn't last for a minute. <laughs> so what's actually happening is thought arises because of intentions and habit. That's, I think, more accurate. So what, what could you do about that? Well, you could start to change the habit. And how would you change the habit? Well, you could try to notice the end of thought. And just appreciate, oh, there's no thought. Now, when you, when you do that, then you're not trying to get rid of thought. And you're noticing that thought is not a constant. You're not putting any uh, uh, aversion into it. Not that this person is doing this with aversion. I'm not saying that. But that is quite often the case. And what you're doing is you're, you're putting a, a, a suggestion in, in the flow of consciousness that that's what you want to notice. You want to notice the end of thought, space around thought, the gap between thought, no thought, okay? Rather than the suggestion to yourself is, I have to get rid of thought. Now, if you, if you make that suggestion to yourself, unfortunately, you'll think more. It's perverse, isn't it? <laughs> it's a bad joke. Okay, I, I won't think. Do that. Do that and just, just sit there and think, I, I, I refuse to think. It'll last a while and then the bell rings <laughs> and you'll be lost in thoughts. It's, it's brilliant. So now you're not doing that. What you're doing is you're practicing awareness with thinking. That, that seems very, very hard. But, but if you just trust it, just say that, oh, like, like, like I, the suggestion I made earlier, uh, say, to your, you know, say a thought and notice the end of the thought. And then really make that the seed of your practice. Then when you're doing walking meditation, 
when the mind starts thinking, rather than trying to control yourself not to think, stop. And then notice no thought. But you have to do it deliberately. You can't just kind of, yeah, I notice yeah, there's no thought, and then I keep thinking. You have to kind of make a deliberate intention and statement. So now the intentions you're putting into mind is not about thinking, the habit of thinking. It's about, oh, noticing something, oh, no thought. And if you do that, if you do that, then what wins, what wins is silence. And what wins is awareness of thought arising. But we don't trust that because we're so impatient. But you, ha you have to kind of give it a go. Now, I'm not saying that this won't work. But what will probably happen is as soon as you take the control mechanisms off, your mind will just go brrrr. It'll just think, 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 think. Because what you do is you just control it. You, you know, you really controlled it. But now you're not, you're not so much, at least this is the way I've been taught and this is the way I've learned it. So sometimes, yeah, you can do that, but look at it. What, what, do, what result does that give you? When you walk away from the meditation or the retreat, do you have a mind which can abide in no thought? You know, because that's what you want to do, right? You want to leave this retreat with the equipment to be free from obsessive thought. How might that work, right? Does this, does this do it? Well, how would this work? Well, well, when you're in Bangkok and you're going from A to B, then this is what you'd have to do, right? And you'd run into a lamppost. <laughs> you can do this. Could you, you know, I mean, I tried this in, in London, right? I tried to walk around London like this, and it was horrible. And you can't do it because life is complicated. But you can, you can, you can notice the thinking mind in a complex situation, and you can let go of it. It's doable, right? So this might be a technique and give you certain results on a retreat. But Lumpur Cha, and, and I come from that, you know, he taught us, he said, now just learn how to meditate normally. Just make it a normal situation so that all the time you can meditate. And he used to joke, he said, yeah, so do slow walking, but what are you going to do when you have diarrhea? <laughs> he always had a good twist. So I'm not dismissing this, and it has its place, right? But uh, what is its limits? And then what is the limits of what I'm talking about too, right? You know, so if you've done that technique, where is it helpful? And, and, and <laughs> what I'm saying, is it helpful or is this a joke? I don't know. Uh, but, you know, test it out. But I, I was certainly encouraged to do that. And, and really, I can, I can walk around a city and notice my mind getting distracted and collect it, right? But I can still look at architecture, right? And when I get, when I get scattered, I can collect my mind. Or if my mind is worrying about something, I can notice it and just collect my mind on walking. I don't have to, I don't have to be super focused. If I go on Pindapod, right, I can notice the street, I can notice people and be collected, composed. I can notice thought. I can let go of thought, right? It's not. Yeah. So if, but if I'm just trying to get rid of thought, yeah, no, it won't work. So I would, I would look at that myself. One more. Two more, three more. This is this is in the done pile. Ooh, it's long. This is an essay. Someone has written a book. <laughs> anyway, 
Throughout my meditation experiences, I observe piti sukha, happiness that arises from time to times. So when piti sukha arises, it will come to my consciousness. I observed and I'm aware of the body sensation that comes with it. The mind recognizes it, becomes part of sanya, right? My next question is, that wasn't the question, wasn't it the question? Right, okay. My next question is, I have been using Pita Sukha as a part of the object of meditation, combining with the breath, also aware of the space around that, all taking place in any present moment. Is this practice correct? Very good. Very nice. I wish I could do that. <laughs> Doable. Yeah, you're doing it, right? So very good, very good. As I found it to be very delighting and less stressful. Is it wrong? No. Why would, you know, enjoy? Why would it be wrong? Please explain whether and how we can meditate on Piti Sukha. Well, if you can make that conscious, then it's something you can sustain, isn't it? Because it's, it's, it's a beauty. I use, I use, I try to bring beauty into practice through imagining people. Right, so I imagine um, Lompo Semedo. Sometimes I'll even imagine my mom, you know, although she's long gone, or people have been generous, or I'll use beauty a lot in nature. You know, I'll just look at something and, and, and be drawn to it and see that. So it's not such a powerful emotional thing, but it's very uplifting. And I think we dismiss beauty sometimes. But I would say it's in the, in, in the realm of mudita bhavana. So what is mudita? Mudita is appreciation and joy at, at beauty, isn't it? And so usually it's couched in terms of you appreciate the, the success and beauty of someone else. And that's very obvious. When you, when the, uh, I, I love it when a, when a child brings something to mom that the child has just made, right? And, you know, it's some finger painting or something. And mom says, oh, you're Picasso. <laughs> and it's beautiful to see both the mom's joy and the child's joy. And that's, that's a form of joy that we can bring quite easily to mind. So I'd say, you know, whatever this person is doing, sattu, it's, it's, it's very healthy, very wholesome, very good kamma. And, and for us to reflect on um, that we can, we, can, we can bring that to mind. And that, I think we started the retreat with those ideas of, of mudita bhavana. It's a very lovely, lovely thing to do. Yeah, I've contemplated beauty a lot. Why do we, you know, we're really drawn to beauty. Like, like I, I'm obviously drawn to, to like Japanese woodwork, you know, the care. And, and uh, so I think I began the retreat, didn't I? I was talking about how do you, how do you bring care into the attitude. Yeah, if I remember. Well, how many days ago was that? <laughs> but, you know, if, if, we, if we recollect what I was saying, it's like, the, like Lopa Cha saying to me, when I, when I kick the spittoon, I says, my sway, right? So how do, how do I bring that, like, like, beauty into the attitude that I apply to mindfulness of breath? Huh? And, and, and what might that mean in my... So, like, when, when, when people offer me uh, dana and flowers, you know, you could see everyone's so graceful and so beautiful in their offering. And, and that, that's an aspect of mind, isn't it? Right? So how, how might one do that in, 
in 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 attending in attending to negative states of mind like fear or 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 pain how how would that have a place would that kind of caring attitude have a place to looking at fear and i think it would as opposed to oh there's the fear i have to get rid of it or like maybe even the walking meditation you know like i used to joke it's like viradhamma against the walking path now <laughs> Can I make it 20 paces and not think? This is so that was like a battle. <laughs> well, whereas like like just the, the gracefulness of walking and, and, and body, like the what the Thai people taught me is the the the, the, the grace the way the Thai folk move, you know, the way you move amongst each other, it's just so beautiful and so graceful and so gentle. And then we furungs come in boom, 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 boom. <laughs> And that's one thing that, 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 like, I think all, all of us early days at Wat Bapong, where we, we, I think we watched pretty good and we said, well, look how they walk and they don't bang the floor. And, 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 and Ajahn Chah taught that a lot, you know, the way of, of beauty and mindfulness rather than force. The other day you said that the Dalai Lama is your teacher as well. So could you please explain about the awareness and the meditation in Tibetan Buddhism? What, like in five minutes? <laughs> Are you kidding me? <laughs> I, um, this, you know, this is, uh, I hate to be facetious, but this is an absurd question. <laughs> Tibetan Buddhism is, is, is huge. You know, it's not like a, a technique. Uh, so I suggest uh, going to the library <laughs> or going to YouTube and looking up Tibetan Buddhism and you'll probably find a few websites. <laughs> they have some very, very good practices of the heart. Um, they have practices like before the teacher gives you a meditation instruction, you do 10,000 prostrations. They have very, very good visualization techniques. Um, they have, they, <laughs> this is a great question. <laughs> they have things like, uh, that we don't have. They have the, the, um, the stages of post-death experience, the bardo stages. They're the only Buddhist school that actually talks about visualizing the states of meditation after death. We have nothing like that. Uh, they, so it's really, you see, Tibetan Buddhism is probably a thousand years old. And Theravada is 2,600 years old. So there was 1,600 years of evolution, change in, in, in Buddhism, in all aspects of Buddhism, from its philosophy to its iconography, that then affected uh, Tibetan Buddhism. And Tibetan Buddhism was influenced by uh, Bengali Tantrism. So Tantra, if you've heard of Tantra, Tantra actually came from Hindu culture and from Bengal. And the Indian monk with us, Amrasiri, in, in Tisarana, he did a lot of the tantric practices as a Brahmin. 
so he could identify them totally in the Tibetan practices. So, so Buddhism had become Mahayana, which, which was a change from Theravada, and then it picked up all kinds of other schools, Pure Land and, and China and so on. And then the, 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 the Muslim invasions, right, uh, pretty much wiped out Buddhism in, by the 12th century, I think, uh, in India. And there was, a diet, there was a refugees of Buddhists going up into the Tibetan plateau. And this, so this diaspora of Buddhists had learned uh, Tantra, and, and, and the way Buddhism evolved was in competition with Hinduism very often. And if the royalty, the royalty supported the, probably the, the, the best philosophers or debaters, I suppose, uh, or whoever they chose, and, and there was always this competition for royal favor. So... Buddhism and Hinduism have this great interplay, and then the different Mahayana schools too. So in any case, uh, Buddhism then took on the flavor of Tantra, and then that went up into the Tibetan plateau. And then into the Tibetan plateau, they had uh, um, animistic religion, a bon, it's called bon religion. So that would be like the village magic that you find in, in Ubon, in black magic and white magic, and you find that a lot in Burma. So then all of that tantric Buddhism got mixed in with Bon as well. So you've got a real different kind of Buddhism now. And so like the, the say like in Tibetan Buddhism, they'll say that um, enlightened beings can reincarnate and become the Dalai Lama. And we don't have that, right? So that, that is totally different to, so even the idea of an uh, enlightened being become, you know, getting reborn is, is, is wrong view, michaditi in, in, in Theravada Buddhism. But what happened also in, in the use of language is that the word arahant got downgraded <laughs> and arahant became a lesser achievement and I, I guess it still had a bit of taste of selfishness in it and the bodhisattva got an upgrade <laughs> whereas for us the bodhisattva was simply the life of the previous Buddha and then there's the enlightenment whereas, whereas then Mahayana took that on and changed the whole idea of bodhisattva and arahant so an arahant became a pejorative word or a negative word, it's like Hinayana, selfish, want to be Arahant, right? And, and then, so then, when a Mahayana, when Tibetans see a Theravada monk, they say, Hinayana. And, and because they've been conditioned to think that Theravada is still stuck in some kind of selfishness called arahant. <laughs> so when Lompa Cha was in England, he visited a, a, a large Tibetan monastery in Cambria, and, and we knew the lay leader of, of that, it's a huge center, and the lay, the CEO, the lay CEO 
was very good friends with us, and he invited Ajahn Chah. And, and we had heard that they, you know, they all thought we were lesser, lesser beings, <laughs> and they were the, the kind of upgrade Mahayana. And uh, so Lompa Chah went up there, and you know, in the Mahayana, you have the story about Mahakasapa, and Mahakasapa puts up a flower, and everyone understands, ah, the real Dhamma. Salompacha, he had kind of heard that story, so he went there and took a flower and did this. <laughs> and they said, oh, oh. <laughs> it totally charmed them, and they all loved him, so. They, they, then, they, then they say, oh, he's a bodhisattva. <laughs> so it's, it, the history of Buddhism is very, very interesting. But, but uh, if you want to read about it in meditations, then please do so. I'll cover some of these <laughs> tomorrow. Okay, we'll finish there. <clears throat> Yeah. <laughs>